Hello, and welcome to Work at Life uh, Season 3. And I'm very sad to say that we are getting close to the end of our season already. I can't believe it. Um, but as always, we have a very special guest today, and I will let Sonia introduce her in just a minute. Um, but just to say, first of all, happy Diwali, which is a little hint as to what we might be talking about today. <laughs> um, and also really just so the, the theme of this season has been uh, the great opportunity. So, you know, what what uh, advantages or ideas can we take from what's happening with the great resignation um, to to take organizations and or employees themselves um, through to thinking about this with a slightly different perspective. Um, and the topic that we have for today is actually really, really important. And I'm so happy um, that we get to dig into this a little bit. So without further ado, um, I will turn it over to Sonia to kick us off for this conversation. Thank you, Maddie. It's such a pleasure to be with all of you again today. We do have um, such an incredible episode for you. And big part of the reason is because we have one of my dearest friends in the world, Andrea O'Leary, with us. She is the Chief People Officer of the Enterprise Client Group in Innovation at Aon, and has just been one of my favorite people <laughs> from the day that I met her. Um, we got our PhDs both at DePaul University. We worked together for many years at CareerBuilder. And ever since then, she has just been somebody that I've admired tremendously as a friend and as a colleague and as a peer and somebody who I've really looked up to not only for her professional accomplishments, but just also the incredible things that she's done in the, in the area of diversity equity, inclusion, and belonging. And so when, when Maddie and I were thinking about, you know, who would be a, a good, a great guest, the best guest for this episode and this topic, she was the first person that came to mind. And so Andrea, welcome to the show. It's so wonderful to have you. Um, I'll let you tell our, our audience a little bit more about yourself and then also what makes you passionate about this area. We'll, we'll kick it off there. Awesome. Well, thank you, Sonia and Maddie, for having me. I'm truly honored to be a guest and talk about a topic that is very, very near and dear to my heart. Um, so maybe a little bit about me before I jump into the, uh, you know, why I'm so passionate about it. Uh, I'm, I'm from the Chicago area. I, as Sonia said, I've worked at Ann for about nine years, and her and I have a past of working together at CareerBuilder for many years and, and grad school, et cetera. Um, I've got two kids, twin six-year-old boys um, that honestly are like kind of my constant motivator in life um, and just keep me moving in a way that feels really, really positive. Um, and the last thing I'd say is that I, which will lead a little bit into the passion, am biracial. So I'm, I'm half black, I'm half white. And so when we start to think about just diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, it matters to me first and foremost because it's personal. Um, and, you know, I've lived actually having been sort of this, having been very opportunistic, although it hasn't always felt that way of spanning sort of two, um, you know, races or ethnicities and seeing just disparity even within my own life and what that has meant and what that looks like. And so, um, you know, I have really jumped in um, in various ways since kind of joining Aon. I have the opportunity to um, and have had the opportunity to lead 
what's called the Black Professional Network at Aon. So I led it locally in Chicago for about three years. And then I started the first ever national um, structure at Aon. And I've led that team for four years. And um, that's really a leader, like a group of executives um, that are really trying to drive impact for all colleagues, but specifically Black colleagues. I also sit on our Global Inclusive Leadership Council at Aon. So I do a lot of work with that. And then I also sit on the board of a nonprofit and and serve as the vice chair that really is working to try and sort of create more equity and um you know honestly find gainful employment for individuals who've been impacted by poverty or homelessness etc and so i i have the opportunity to sort of see it and experience it both personally but also professionally in a lot of the work i do um and it's it's needed it's important which is a lot of why i'm super super passionate about it so sorry, that was a really long answer to what could have been no, a question. Awesome. By the way, Selena, no, I, I don't know if you, I don't know if I've ever said this on the show, but I'm actually half white and half Asian, so French and Thai. So I, I'm right there with you, Andrea. Yeah, you get I to love see it. the interesting, you know, the dynamics and the dichotomy that exists um, sort of being of more than one race is very intriguing. So, yes. yeah. Well, I'm just white. So I got, <laughs> but I'm, I'm very impressed with both of your backgrounds and I can just, I can only imagine, um, I've done a lot of like studying around gender identity and racial identity and like, what do people identify with? And I think I've probably listened to every Ted talk out there about it. And it's just fascinating. It's fascinating what people relate to. It's fascinating, like just doing discovery about yourself. And I think it's oftentimes even really challenging when you're just a single race or ethnicity, but when you're in this world of both, I, I can only imagine the complexities. It's, um, it's not something obviously I can personally relate with, but it's definitely fascinated me, like I said, and I've done so much like research and trying to learn more about it. So that's, you know, when we, when we talk about what inspires us and what we dedicate a lot of our life to and a lot of our careers to, very often it's things that impacted, our pers impacted us personally because we know um, we can even better relate to what others might be going through. And we, it gives us even this additional drive to say, okay, well, how do I change the world? What are things that, you know, I've absolutely loved about it, this identity? What are some of the things that have been really challenging about it? And those things that have been challenging about it, how can I maybe remove it for other people or for the following generation? So. Well, I and Sonia, don't put yourself down because you're Serbian and you live in Argentina. <laughs> yeah. and, you know, like the, I'm multicultural. Yes, <laughs> you are. You're global. And, the, you know, the Internet and the digital age has enabled, a, I mean, I think the starting with the millennial generation, um, we're just used to a much more kind of global perspective. You know, my kids who are teenagers have friends from tons of different countries, tons of them. So, yeah. Um, well, and this whole idea of what, what we're talking about here is this term that I we talk a lot about at AN, is, which is intersectionality. So, like, what is the intersection point of actually many characteristics that define who we are, whether that's sort of diverse characteristics or diversity type characteristics? It could be political. You know, it could be yeah. sort of the titles or the, you know, the um, societal sort of names we give as like woman or man or mom or dad, et cetera. But what's interesting is that we all have an intersectionality of some aspect that makes us sort of uniquely us, but also makes the experiences that people have, whether 
you know, I could go talk to another woman who's half black, half white, and her experiences are going to be completely different than mine. And so for me to sort of generalize that just because I'm a woman Mm -hmm. who's half black, half white, you can't, it's hard to do that. You've got to be really thoughtful. And when we're thinking about inclusion and belonging, which I know is a topic and how organizations tackle that, that idea of intersectionality Mm -hmm. is so critical to how we really think about being, you know, belonging in an organization and what that really means. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, and I'll I'll pull up our first data point because I'm just thinking like we have so much to say and in in a lot of what we're talking about, I think it's you know, um, Andrea, you brought up and it's it's funny. I like get impressed every time because I forget like all the things that you're involved in. But one of the things you know we talk about individuals making a difference and we talk about us you know doing self discovery and that's a, a big thing that we're seeing in the market now. Why so many people are thinking about changing jobs, leaving? You know, it's people are trying to decide what is it, where do I belong, where do I fit in, where do I really want to make a difference? And in many ways, for a really long time, organizations have talked about diversity and inclusion and different initiatives and what do we do? And I think now, probably even more than ever, they have this like really critical moment where it's important to make a difference because it's so important for people who are deciding what's the next thing that I do with my career and how do I fit in and where do I really want to be? And one of the questions that we had asked as a part of this research is um, we asked workers across the United States where they believed their organization was on the diversity and inclusion journey. And 43% said that they felt like their organization was fully committed to it followed by 28% who said, you know, we're on our way. And then 15 said we're getting started. And then, you know, the remaining 15% were pretty split between we're talking about it, but not doing much. And then we aren't really doing anything. And so, Andrea, I was wondering, you know, from, from your perspective, when, when I first look at like these charts, I'm like, oh, cool, you know, almost half are committed. And then, you know, 28 are on their way. Oh, but wait a minute. Everybody should be fully committed. What's going on? And so just from your experience, and it, I mean, it sounds like um, in the work that you're doing both personally and, you know, through Aon, that Aon in particular is really fully committed to, you know, making a difference in diversity and inclusion. What would be, based on your experience, like what's what's your thought about this data? Like, do you think it's encouraging? Do you think that there's an opportunity? And maybe what do you think would be some things that organizations, you know, it's important for them to be thinking about. It doesn't have to be something that's like brand new or no one's ever thought about it, but it's, hey, as we're going into 2022, and as you're likely making some of your plans, here are some of the things that, you know, maybe you've seen work or things that you think would be important for organizations to consider. Yeah, so, you know, I would say, first and foremost, that 43% saying they're fully committed, their organization is fully committed is 100% encouraging. I, you know, I would suspect if I was a, a betting woman, which actually I'm very risk averse. So I would say I'm, I'm not not generally someone who is betting woman, but that that number would have been lower probably two years ago. Um, you know, I think mm-hmm. a lot of what the pandemic and even, you know, the many social injustices and unrest and things we've seen around the world has really sort of brought to life um, diversity, equity, inclusion, which I think in many ways had kind of subsided in a lot of organizations. And so I, I think that, that the trend is optimistic, and I think it's probably even going to continue to trend higher um, with more organizations sort of getting fully committed. 
I think the interesting thing here, and, and whenever I sort of see data points, I actually tend to gravitate more towards the middle and less towards the extremes. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a bit of like my sort of change management mindset that I come because mm -hmm. what I, there's a chart that I think about often when I think about change that sort of essentially says, and it's like the typical bell curve that you would sort of mm -hmm. assume to see where on one hand of the side are like, when we're talking about change, you've got X percentage, usually a fairly high, they're like all in. You know, and then you've got the on the other front, there's a certain percentage that tends to be maybe 25% of the organization, or I said bell curve, but I meant I, I did the U, but I meant bell curve this way. So you've got like 25% who are fully committed, 25% who are like, no way, Jose, this is not going to work. And then the majority of people actually sit somewhere in the middle. Um, and those are the people that I think become really, really important. And so if I think about this chart and the opportunity that exists is when you've got again, about 50% of people sort of sitting in those middle aspects, you mm -hmm. sort of ask yourself as an organization, what's half, like, what is, what is the perception we, that our colleagues are thinking about or our employees are thinking about? And what is it that we're actually hoping is, is the message? And yeah. so there's usually oftentimes a bit of a disparity. So, you know, if I think about the, we're on our way, th that's great. Like that, that's wonderful that people think they're moving in the, the right direction, but there's a pivotal mm -hmm. point at which you could either become someone who's fully committed or you could become someone who's actually moving the other direction. And I think having goals, having a, a philosophy about the ENI, having sort of tangible things that colleagues can gravitate to that feel like the momentum's mm -hmm. moving in the right direction are going to be key things that are going to help move that sort of fully committed up. Um, yesterday, I was actually on a discussion with um, it was sort of an employee benefits one. And, and so I won't go into the, the whole thing about it. But the idea was around diversity, equity and inclusion and belonging and the spin it was on benefits. And what we talked about really was is you've got to have sort of as an organization start with a philosophy and goals at a, at a minimum, because everything that you do has to build off of that from you know, the employee resource groups you put in place to the things that you might do from a behavioral or comp standpoint to hold people accountable to the benefits that you have. If you've got a philosophy and if you've got goals, that becomes the grounding mm -hmm. principle in which you ask yourself, is what we're doing supporting the goals and the philosophy we have? And if the answer is no, then you stop doing it. and Or you say, we're not going to do that or we're not mm -hmm. going to tackle it. And if the answer is yes, then you do it and you build upon it. And those are the things that employees need to see to feel like their organization is committed versus like not interested in it at all, in my opinion. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I like um, I like your view too, like on the positive side of it, that it's, it's so encouraging to see organizations putting effort towards it, that it's good. It almost, um, and I, I like look at employee net promoter score all day long. And to me, it's like those, like the passes where you're saying, okay, like these people we can encourage and, and move, move over. And I think it's the same with organizations. And a lot of times I get asked the question, like, well, what would you say to organizations that are, you know, not prioritizing this? How could they not be? And I don't know if this is the right philosophy, but usually what I'll say is, achieving these goals for diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging is hard. And that's part of the reason why many organizations are not where they want to be, but have the desire to get there. I would much rather at this point work with organizations that want to get better and help them find a way than convince somebody later or somebody who is not committed to it or doesn't see the value 
that they should see it. Because I think, I, I don't know usually what the reasons are because I don't have for better or worse conversations with many of those organizations. But I figure at some point they'll catch on whether it's for financial reasons or for the greater good of the community or, or the humanity. But it's really looking at those organizations that are towards the top and saying, what can we do? What can we do as a group? What can we do as a society? What can we do as somebody who's really passionate about this? to help them really to, to start to move the needle. And that, that brings us to the next you know, data point that we looked at is we asked again, workers, what part of the employee life cycle is the toughest to impact when it comes to improving diversity, what their perception was. Um, and we asked about four different factors. Um, development came up as the highest one with 35% saying they believe that was the toughest one with recruitment um, being second one at 28%, promotion at 22, and then retention at 15. Um, based on, again, your work, like, do you do you see some surprises here? Is this what you would expect? Like, what, what did you think of, <laughs> of this data? Yeah, I would say, so development is not surprising to me as being the top, and, um, but there was one surprise, which I'll talk about um, here in a second. But you, the reason why I would say development, I thought may come up to the top um, here is honestly because in an organization, and, and I think Aon sometimes, you know, we're not, or we're not, um, what's the word I'm looking for? We're not uh, like excluded from this at all. Like, it's hard sometimes to think about like, how do you create development opportunities or development pathways or career paths that are really going to be truly like inclusive, tr truly equitable, truly diverse? Because a lot of times uh, what happens from a development standpoint is you go with the people that you know, or you, you tend to mentor or you sponsor, or you do things with sort of people who are in your community. And so, and, and look like you and, um, and have the same background as you or went to the same school as you, et cetera. And so what we find a lot of times is that development becomes really challenging when we're talking about, again, trying to make sure that that diverse colleagues get the same opportunity, you know, get the same development opportunities as others, because they're just not as well networked in the organization and they don't yeah. have that much exposure. And so, you know, a lot of organizations, this idea of sponsorship has been coming up. So it's this idea around, um, more of an active sort of role in a person's career. So with mentorship, it's we talk about it as being very consultative, coaching, conversational, you know, but um, as a sponsor, what you're doing is you're actually sort of advocating for them. You're introducing them to your network. You're They're maybe working on projects for you with the intention of really advancing that person or developing that person to grow. And um, there's a lot of research that shows, you know, sponsorship is the better route to go. And so at AM, we've really been trying to think about how are we more intentional about the programs we create that actually are truly trying to be equitable and give people an opportunity to expose their networks. You know, the one thing I would say that was a little surprised, surprising for me was that promotion. Um, I That recruitment was the one that showed up next instead of promotion. So I actually would have yeah. thought promotion would have showed up a little bit higher. And the reason why is because most organizations promote on a cycle of some sort. Like people aren't mm -hmm. just getting promotions at any point in time. Now some do, but you know, most of them are either once a year when comp is being reviewed and you know, merit increases yeah. are being given out, or maybe it's twice a year. So once during that time and another time. Um, and so because of that, it's actually hard to make a lot of progress 
from a diversity, equity, and inclusion standpoint on promotion because it's it doesn't happen very often. And so, mm-hmm. you know, recruitment is something that's constant in the organization. There's just, there, you yeah. know, people are constantly posting, constantly hiring roles. And so that was the one surprise to me. But at the end of the day, in many ways, all of these things can be really difficult when you think yeah. about how do you really think about inclusive employment at organizations? I mean, there it's a life cycle of which we'd have to think about and ask ourselves, are we being diverse and equitable and inclusive in development? Are we being that in recruitment? So on and so forth. Yeah. Well, and one thing that I was thinking about, because I agree with you, and I, if you look at most hard data, I think promotions, and if you look at the funnel, you'll see that most organizations achieve greatest diversity at the beginning, and then you kind of lose diverse candidates, especially as you go up in the organizational hierarchy. This was based also more on people's perceptions. And what's also interesting is, I wonder if there's a little bit of what do organizations maybe hold their managers accountable for? And recruitment might be, to your point, the more frequent one, and maybe even one where more organizations are focusing to say, okay, we need to get diverse candidates in. And I wonder if that's more of a message that we need to get diverse candidates promoted. And it's probably why we're seeing that difference in in the hard stats but people are saying, ah, I'm being held accountable, you know, for recruitment and I'm having a really hard time finding diverse candidates. And so to me, I think sometimes it, this also shows the importance of having like behavioral data and having perception data and matching those up to say, what are the, like the two versions of the truth and what's happening in the organization versus what do people see as a pain point and also what are they being asked to do? Yeah, well, and one thing that I'll say just for the listeners out there that um, is is a huge, when we talk about recruitment, is a huge benefit as we think about how to really make sure things are more diverse and equitable and inclusive is sort of two steps that you can do in the, the recruitment space. First and foremost, like force, like do not fill a role until it's a diverse slate of people. Um, and so really thinking about don't always just go with the referrals, you know, don't just go <laughs> with the people that you know, but keeping the rec open and sort of, yeah. you know, challenging the hiring managers or the recruit the recruiters who are working to say this slate is not diverse enough. I want to see it diverse by region or diverse by ethnicity or gender or whatever the case may be. And then the second is a diverse interview panel. So having making mm-hmm. sure that and that what we're learning at Aon is that it actually is really great when you don't have everybody from the business that you're trying to hire that person into on the panel. Like I was able to sit on a panel more recently of like a client facing account executive role that's based out of Chicago. I'm in HR. I actually really don't know a ton about what they do, but could I be a valuable person on their interview panel? Absolutely. Because a lot of what that role is, is leadership. And I know a lot about leadership. And so I think the opportunity that we can also just think outside of the lines of the business when we're thinking about how to, you know, sort of stack up a diverse interview panel um, could be is really, really valuable. And the research shows that that starts to level the playing field. Like, yeah. I think it's like 200 percent or something crazy mm-hmm. as far as the stats considered around how people can then be considered, again, more equitable in the process. Um, and you're going to get a more diverse pipeline of people coming into your organization, which is good, too. Yeah. One of one of the things I was reading about recently, too, was um, if you're an organization that's not necessarily diverse, but you're looking to fix that, also doing like, I don't know, I don't think I'll articulate this correctly, but hopefully it'll be clear enough, like diverse hiring, like 
in on in on scale at scale meaning like what's going to happen if you start to bring one diverse candidate or two diverse candidates and they walk in there like wait a minute <laughs> like why am i yeah. the only x person like do i want to stay here is this going to be okay and so to almost like consciously do it in groups and i know it's not always easy for every organization maybe not as easy for smaller ones but to your point of also having like that first like front line having diversity having that experience is phenomenal but then if a person gets in the organization but then actually every like you found like the all all of the diverse people in the organization to be in the interview and then they come in and they're like oh but hold on where you know where is this person like why was everybody around me like male or white or you know whatever so that's something else that I was reading about too, is like kind of doing it in groups to make sure that people don't feel like, oh, I'm like the one black person here. I'm like the one woman that's here. Right. Great. <laughs> well, and I think what you're also speaking to, Sonia, is that a lot of organizations struggle more with the culture that they have in the organization once people get there. So they can get people in the door, whether it's the onesie twosies or the sort of like math yeah. kind of hiring. But if you don't have a culture that embraces, even if they're not diverse, but that embraces the idea of differences and diverse perspectives and, and has a pathway of which that sort of helps them feel included and belonging and belonged to the, um, to the organization, then you're, you're not going to keep them. And that's mm -hmm. a trend that organizations, I think, are struggling with more than the recruiting and to some, mm -hmm. to some extent, like, Again, I think that when you look at that data point, obviously recruitment came up a second, but if you think about the other aspects were really the internal aspects of the organization, development, promotion, retention. And it's like, if you add all of those up, I mean, that's overwhelming where the majority of that issue becomes is just how do we keep people if we don't have yeah. the culture that's the one we, you know, we're, we're promoting externally in the market. <sighs> Yeah, we have no idea how often that comes up in my conversations where I'll talk to someone and they say, we don't have time to work on our culture employee experience. We need to hire people. I'm like, ah! Like, no, 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 no. It doesn't work like that. Hold up, wait a minute. Like, you're adding water to a leaky bucket. It's just going to go. Like, don't, like, I'm not saying don't hire anyone until you think about your culture and your people. But don't like you you cannot not think like do it in parallel right. do it like make these people a promise tell them you're changing tell them you're going to be a part of that change but do not say like oh i'm going to put all of these other things on hold while i figure out you know how to recruit people and i think i think people are coming around to it more but i think that there is still like some difference in people like that are in hr that focus on culture that understand those nuances versus sometimes like maybe a hiring manager that's in finance or in operations or in sales that doesn't think about culture as much as the three of us do. And it's like, no, but I just need people. I'm missing people. Like, I don't want to like, I don't have time to see how my team is feeling. Like I need another butt in their seat. And so hopefully we'll, you know, with these kinds of conversations and my data, we'll, we'll continue to see changes in those trends that's been coming up with me recently, especially with people changing jobs so much. And I'm like, no, 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 please listen, please listen. Um, which brings us to our next data point of, how much people feel sense of a belonging in their organization. And I think we started to talk about that pre-pandemic, but as so many people have done some significant soul searching and saying, you know, what is it that I want to do with my life? Where do I want to spend a lot of time? One of the things that we asked is, do you feel a sense of belonging to your organization for people, you know, who are currently employed? And 43% of people said, absolutely. 38% said somewhat. And then 19% were between like, well, not 
not really or not at all. Um, Maddie, I don't know if you want to grab this one and, and share your opinions on what is, <laughs> what yeah, well, are you here? <laughs> it's interesting because we've, we've done a lot of research around inclusion specifically as one of eight culture markers. Um, the other seven being things like innovation and agility and growth and things like that. But um, essentially inclusion, it's, it's interesting because a lot of people it feel like it's sort of you're naturally a, a fit if you've if you're happy in your organization, right? Um, but but they don't even ask themselves the question often, and that's what was really interesting about one of the impacts of the pandemic is that people were actually asking themselves the question: <clears throat> Do I really, you know, is it worth the the pain of whatever job I'm doing compared to, you know, the other um, things that that are important parts of my life, right? Um, but from an inclusion perspective, you know, a lot of people don't really, it, it's just sort of a given that, you know, you're, you're sort of like a family, right? And, you know, you're like mm -hmm. part of a group and you're part of a team and, you know, maybe you don't like that other group or that other team, but, you know, you're happy in yours. <clears throat> But when you start to break it down into culture, um, what we would call building blocks, <clears throat> you get to this, this idea that you have to, as an organization, you have to be proactive about allowing different kinds of people to have a voice, for example. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't often happen if you're not proactive about it. And so, for example, let's just take an, a, an age example. Um, you know, having somebody who's younger um, take the lead in a project meeting because they had a good idea and they were able to test out something you know that it, it's not rocket science right but that's just no. not how our organizations really work like you have the manager who leads the meeting and that's just how no. it's done um, but you take that little example and you spread it out over a whole organization with you know hundreds of thousands of meetings um, and that's only one type of diversity, age diversity, right? Then you have all kinds of other ones. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, you start to see how it can really create this culture that where, where people don't, don't speak up, for example. Yeah. Um, and Andre, I know you have lots more on this one. <laughs> well, the, the, the one thing I'll add, because I mean, I totally agree with you, is I think the other thing that's been an interesting sort of um, trend that I've observed is that with a lot of the things around the pandemic, and um, I'll start maybe just specifically with the pandemic, is this idea of belonging actually became even more important when everybody was isolated and at home. Mm -hmm. And no, they, you know, how do we belong when I'm sitting in an office, or maybe mm -hmm. for most people, it's a kitchen table, even, you know, by myself, mm -hmm trying to sort of feel belong, like what does belong really look like? And so I think the organizations that were able to sort of quickly pivot to how do we create still inclusion and belonging when we, we can't be together and, and not create more exclusive feelings, because I think a lot of people started to feel very exclusive. And so I think that people have, uh, uh, my obser observation is that people have actually started to place a bit more of importance on this idea of belonging than maybe yeah. they did before when it was like, 
you know, just the nine to five job and I go and I do my paycheck. I think people are looking sometimes for more meaning or connection or purpose in the things, at least in their, like the work that they do, maybe not like, excuse me, let me say differently, the people who they are there with, maybe not always the work that they do, because I think sometimes people can compartmentalize, but they don't want to just sit there because we've sat there for the last two years by ourselves mm-hmm. in a room, they want to create some connection. I think a lot of people are starting to feel that a bit more. And so I just feel like to your points, Maddie, that it just, it's such an important aspect that we think about it, but it is very complex when it, on an organization yeah. scale. Yeah. Well, to me, this something like this is so personal because I, when the pandemic started, one of my friends asked like, you know, the exact question, like, what can organizations do about culture now when you're not, you know, within the same walls? And so many organizations invested so much in having beautiful offices and beautiful spaces and nurseries and like basketball, like whatever, like some, you know, really, really did it up. And to me, again, this is more pulling from my personal life, like, I will never be in the same place with all the people in my life that I love. Like I will never even be in the same continent with all the people that I love, but it doesn't make me any less connected with them. Maybe I have to do it differently. I have to do it more mindfully because I'm not going to, you know, bump into my mom or I'm not going to bump into either one of you, you know, just to have coffee, but it's that intentional that if we're traveling, it's that intentional. We haven't talked in a while. Can we schedule a call? It is about a different kind of connection. It doesn't have to be physical, but it's much more emotional. It's much more maybe intentional because you don't have that physical proximity that sometimes helped. But hopefully many people figured it out and for and organizations and for those who haven't, hopefully enough people have now like the um, toolbox or like whatever they need to be able to say, this is how we can continue to do it on a larger scale. And that's where Maddie and I have talked in a a lot of episodes about flexibility because that's what a lot of people are asking about. And I think being able to do that on a, on a different level uh, will continue to help really organizations. I'm trying to like think of a new term, innovating with courage. (laughs) I don't know if it's going to stick, but innovation just for the sake of changing something, it's okay, but doing something really bold and something really smart, something courageous, I think takes it to a different level. So it'll be interesting to see what organizations able to do with that um, in the near term. And so that that kind of segues us. I think maybe we'll have to do this as the last data point because we're already 35 minutes into the episode. Right. <laughs> no, how it blew by so quickly. But um, the last question that we asked, and I, I think that this, you know, very much relates to the sense of belonging, is we asked workers, you know, to what extent do you feel like you can be your authentic self in the organization? And I think this has become increasingly important whether it's you know people are saying it authentic self or whole self or share personal information it's different variations of that and so when we ask people if they feel like they can be their authentic self and in their workplace 50 percent on the dot you know said absolutely completely i can 37 percent said somewhat and then the remaining 14 percent said not really or not at all Oh, I don't know. I will give my opinion real quick because I thought, oh man, like only <laughs> before I turn it to both of you, this one I can't help myself. But for 50 people, 50% of people to feel like they can be fully authentic is tough. And it's not even about sharing, you know, things I don't want to overshare about my kids or bringing all those kinds of things, but really showing up as myself that I feel like I'm good enough. <laughs> to be who I am. Um, that's at least the way I'm, I'm reading this. Um, 
question, I think from, from culture work and probably inclusion, there's quite a bit that can be done to, to move the needle on this one. Uh, but I'd love to know what, what both of you think about what we're seeing well, here. Well, for me, like it, this circles right back to the first data point, right? So if, if almost, well, more than 50%, let's say 50% of people don't really feel like they can be their authentic selves, you know, guess who's looking around for other jobs right now, right? Mm-hmm. They might not have left yet, but if the skills are the same, you know, the skills are transferable, you know, what do you think will attract those people to a different organization that is not yours? Probably one that allows them to be a bit more their authentic selves. It doesn't even need to be their complete authentic selves, but if they don't feel like that where they are now, you know, where like people are leaving all over the place. Um, and that's a, sort of the whole point of this whole season's theme, right? The great resignation and the great opportunity. So for if you're in an organization actually that has people who are leaving, um, one of the reasons for us this is an opportunity is if you also have the diversity goals that we were talking about earlier, you know, maybe it's time to look at your workforce differently and figure out where the gaps are and figure out, you know, how you could achieve some of your diversity goals since you have people leaving anyway. Because I think one of the problems in the past was that if, you know, it's more like we know we have this issue that we'd like to improve, but we can't afford to just hire 10 more people, right? Yeah. (laughs) 200 more people, whatever. Um, but now it's like there's movement in this. Um, and I will, I think all of us can say anecdotally, we're seeing that that diverse candidates are being snapped up for jobs. They're getting multiple mm-hmm. job offers. Like there's there's a demand for this for sure. Yeah. And I the the one thing I'll add to that last comment that you were making is, and if um to your point, like if if they if you don't have a culture that's going to make them feel included and belonging, you know, belonged to the organization, they're going to find somebody else who 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 does at least promotes that. You know, again, they'll have to get into the organization to see if the culture really supports that. But at the end of the day, yeah, the the diverse um, colleagues and various different diversity demographics are really those that are being just like you know, I'll say targeted in a good way um, for whatever roles and different things that people are looking, you know, organizations are looking to fill. And so I think it really just begs the question to, and to, you know, to the theme of this season, which is the opportunity is like, how can organizations really think about this as an opportunity um, to be better in the ways that they, you know, especially in the terms of diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging? Like, how do we, how do you sort of turn that resignations that are happening or the people that might be, you know, walking out the door, whatever the results are saying, the engagement survey mm-hmm. results and make it into something that is actually a opportunity for some introspection and some reflection on where they're, where we're not standing up to the standards that we think we should in those realms of diversity, equity, inclusion. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I love it. Well, I think that's a good last word, except for Sonia. <laughs> no, I just wanted to say, Andrea, I'm like, oh man, this like this could be one of those. All right, in the you know, in episode two of our conversation with Andrea, we're gonna tackle. <laughs> yeah, there's oh, so much incredible. more to this we could dig into. 
Yeah, agreed. Yeah. We've only tapped the surface. So if the yeah. if the listeners like it, I'm always happy to come back and we can go another level deeper if they want. But this awesome. is something that uh, <laughs> matters a ton for sure uh, to yeah. many, many people uh, across the world. Yeah. Well, thank you so incredibly much for sharing all of your insights, your experiences, your passion for it. It was incredible to, to hear all of it and just really grateful for having you and you bet that we're going to take you up in an offer to come yes, back it's recorded for now. Sure. well that <laughs> just means all the listeners better pass it around pass, pass the <laughs> podcast around so that i can yes. come back so definitely yeah. <laughs> awesome well thank I you so it. much thank you thank you Thank you. Oh, thank you, Andrea. Thank you, Maddie. What an incredible episode. And thank you so much to our listeners again. And we will see you next time for our season three wrap up. Until then, take care, everyone. And thank you again for listening in and joining us. Bye. Bye. <laughs>